I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, which will be the topic of our day. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The last few times that I preach, we've looked at the metaphors and titles that the Apostle Paul uses to describe us as Christians. And today we're going to look at one final metaphor, and that is that we are temples. We have looked at the fact that we are jars of clay or earthen vessels, vessels that are weak and frail, vessels that could easily be broken. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul writes, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Vessels that are not worth very much from a monetary standpoint, but the God of heaven has chosen to deposit in us the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? So that his power could be on display. Paul writes again in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And this is meant to encourage us to continue steadfastly in ministry, even though it will be difficult. We are not to lose heart. Paul uses the metaphor tense to describe us as well. And tense is to highlight the fact that this is a temporary existence upon the earth. He's reminding us that we will die one day unless the Lord returns before our deaths. He also points out a promise that God has given us in 2 Corinthians 5.1, for we know that if this tent, this earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And this is a certain fact, because we have been given a guarantee. We have been sealed by the Spirit of God, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.5. 5. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us his Spirit as a guarantee. And then Paul goes on to describe us in 2 Corinthians as ambassadors. And this is a title that he has given to us as Christians. We have been given a job by God. In our natural man, we're not qualified for this job, but because of our connection to Jesus Christ, he has made us qualified to represent him on this earth. And as ambassadors, we are to be motivated by the love that God has expressed to us in his triune being in the person of Jesus Christ. This sacrificial love, this unconditional love, this pursuing love and all-consuming love and an undying love is to motivate us in communicating the good news of Christ. And as ambassadors, we are no longer to look at men from the outward appearance. Our only concern should be, are they in Christ or out of Christ? And finally, our mandate is to represent the king and tell men how they can be reconciled to God. Well, today the metaphor is temple. In 2 Corinthians 
Paul says, for we are the temple of the living God. Now, I want you to let that sink in. We are the temple of the living God. Now, this metaphor is used five times in the New Testament, and they are all used by the Apostle Paul. And we're going to primarily be dealing with the text that is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, I want you to be patient. We're going to be talking about temples, but we got to get to where we need to be. So we're going to have a little, little bit of running start until we get to where Paul makes this statement. A little bit of background. In chapter 6, Paul is making an appeal to the Corinthians not to receive the grace of God in vain. In 1 Corinthians 6.1, he says, Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Paul is pointing out that today is the favorable time. That today is the day of salvation. And I don't know where you are in terms of your spiritual journey. But if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, this is an urging. Today is the day of salvation. Today is a favorable time. And he points out to his ministry partners or points out to the Corinthians that he and his ministry partners have not put any obstacles in their way. In 2 Corinthians 6.3, Paul writes, we put no obstacles in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. And then Paul launches into a description of what committed ministry looks like. He talks about the afflictions, the hardships, the calamities, the beatings, the imprisonments, the riots, the labors, the sleepless nights, and hunger. And Paul goes on to talk about their treatment. And in 2 Corinthians 6, 8 through 10, here's what he says. We are treated as impostors and yet are true. As unknown and yet well known. As dying and behold we live. As punished and yet not killed. As sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As poor yet making many rich. As having nothing yet possessing everything. And then finally, before we get to verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 6, the apostle addresses the Corinthians by name. There is an openness that is motivated by Paul's affection for the Corinthians. Paul is seeking to show them that he has a genuine concern for their souls. And Paul realized that the Corinthians had been influenced by the super apostles who were seeking to kill their affection for him. And Paul points this out to the Corinthians in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 6. He says, you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return... And Paul says, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Paul is telling them that his affection for them is 
wide open. It is not restricted, has not been narrowed. Paul had a genuine love for the Corinthians, and he wanted them to understand that and know that. He says, we love you without reservation, and we're willing to do whatever we can to help you promote your Christian walk. But the opposite was true of the Corinthians. The affections of their hearts had waned for the Apostle Paul. And they were restricted. They were confined in their affections for Paul. One commentator put it this way. It probably, he refers to the fact that they had formed parties, had admitted false teachers, and had not received his instructions as implicitly as, and kindly as they ought to have done. And Paul is appealing to them as their spiritual father that they not shut him out. He didn't want them to shut him out. They were restricting their own affections. So on the heels of that statement, Paul gives them an imperative command. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, he says this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And we need to understand what the Apostle Paul meant by this statement. Not hard for us to understand the do not. It was something that was going on in Corinth, and Paul was saying, stop. Stop it now. And the word unequally yoked is a word that's found nowhere else in the New Testament. The word means to come under an unequal or different yoke, to yoke up differently. And the idea is a double yoke under which two animals work side by side. And Paul probably had in mind the band that we see in Deuteronomy 22.10, where the writer writes, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Now, could you imagine seeing a picture of a cow and a donkey seeking to plow a field, or a camel and a horse seeking to plow a field? The idea is applied by Paul for the purpose of emphasizing how ridiculous it would be for two different animals to be yoked together in a joint venture or a joint endeavor. Now, when it comes to the human race in this world that we live in, there are two divisions of people. Before Almighty God, there are those that believe and those that do not. There are those that are in Christ and those that are not. And Paul here doesn't state in specific terms exactly what he means by not being unequally yoked with unbelievers. So there are many questions that come into play with this statement. And what are some of those questions? How far do we take this? John MacArthur posed these questions that a modern-day or a modern-age person might ask, and I quote, Well, what it really means is you better be sure that you buy your home from a Christian real estate agent. You buy your car from a Christian car dealer. And that you make sure you've got your 
Christian neighbors and you make sure that you have your kids in a Christian school and you make sure that you buy your insurance from a Christian agent and you make sure that you find a Christian butcher. And so on and so on and so on it could go, right? Is that what Paul meant here? And that sounds like isolationism, doesn't it? Did Paul intend for us to be isolationists? No, I don't think so. We know that Paul certainly did not mean that because in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, he said this to the Corinthians. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. We stop there. And then he goes on to say, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. And what Paul was urging the Corinthians to do in that instance was those that name the name of Christ, yes, you separate yourself from them, but not from those that are outside, those that are unbelievers. He says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. And Paul's point is, if you do that, you'd have to leave this world. You wouldn't be able to live in this world. Some might say that Paul is talking about not being unequally yoked in marriage. And although I agree with the principle, because it is the most intimate relationship that we can have upon the face of the earth, and it is spiritual in nature, The context here is not dealing with the subject of marriage. Paul instructed those who were married then, let me back up, instructed those that had gotten saved who were married in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He tells them, you got saved You're married, don't get rid of your spouse. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 to 15, he says to the rest, and I say, not I, but the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, guess what? Do not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, He should not divorce him. So we see that we have a foundational principle here that we are not to be unequally yoked. And there is a temptation always for Christians to try to live in two different worlds. The Corinthians were being influenced by false teachers who were trying to discredit the Apostle Paul and sow the seeds of false doctrine, the doctrines of demons. And what characterizes the doctrines of demons? Well, what happens is false teachers take, a little, take truth and add a little air. In Paul's warning, his imperative command here, his exhortation to the Corinthians is not to enter into partnership with false teachers. 
We cannot enter into those type of partnerships at a spiritual level. Now, let me give you a little bit of background of the Corinthians church. And I forget where I got this. It's not mine. I'm reading it. The church at Corinth existed in a grossly sinful atmosphere. The attitude of the city towards immorality involved no condemnation whatever. On the contrary, it was considered to be a normal part of life. The same loose attitude was often reflected in the church. The case of incense and the question about the Christian view of marriage had their roots in the immoral mind of the city. Most of the members of the church were Gentiles, and the strict morality characteristic of the Jews was foreign to them. They found it difficult to understand that they that what they once considered virtue was now sin. So this is some of what the Apostle Paul was dealing with at the church at Corinth. And Paul launches into some contradictions, some opposites. And he is using rhetorical questions to challenge the Corinthians. Paul is now going to give them the rationale for his exhortation not to be unequally yoked. And these questions, no answer is given because the, the answer is obvious. His first question is this, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Righteousness is established by a holy and righteous God. Where God sets a standard, there will always be an opposite. Righteousness is a condition of being acceptable to God and subject to his law. And we are acceptable to God because of who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Lawlessness is the opposite. Opposite condition, being without law, unacceptable to God. And Paul's question is, what business do you have as a new creature in Christ entering into partnership with lawlessness? And there are some verses in the New Testament that help us to understand what Paul is talking about. In Hebrews 1.9, the writer writes, you have loved righteousness. And hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Or Titus 2.14, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and his death for us. It says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all what? Lawlessness. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And in Matthew 7.23... The Lord Jesus Christ spoke these words to those that thought they were connected to him, but they really were not. He says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
And the question becomes for us, how much am I willing to obey God or can I compromise in this one little area of lawlessness? Question number two, Paul says, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Paul says, let us look at it from a different angle. And there is nothing in our daily experience as a man that demonstrates contrast or contradiction more than light and darkness. They are exact opposites. Darkness and light cannot coexist. Paul says, what fellowship, what joint participation has light with darkness? It just doesn't work. Colossians 1.13 says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness. And in 1 Peter 2.9, Peter writes, But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, you, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are children of light. And there should be no mixture with darkness. Paul's third question is this. What accord, what agreement has Christ with Baal? And I want you to notice there is a progression here. Christ represents light and Satan represents darkness. We have the captain of light and the captain of darkness placed in opposition to one another. Christ is the Lord of righteousness and the light of the world. And Satan is the prince of lawlessness and darkness. And between the two, there is no harmony possible, only the deadliest antagonism. The devil, whose character is revealed in John 8, where God says through the pen of John, you are of your father, the devil, and you will do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan's exclusive and supreme objective is to oppose and overthrow the purposes of God. He is the adversary. He wants to destroy God's kingdom, and he wants to destroy anyone that names the name of Christ. And we see Satan's boldness, his audacity, as he sought to tempt the very Son of God in Matthew chapter 4. And if he is so bold to tempt the Son of God, who are we to think that he will not tempt us as well? And Christ's response each time that he was tempted was to give him the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And thanks be to Christ, God's chosen one, his anointed one. He has brought, <clears throat> has brought to nothing him who had the power of death. 
Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partake of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. 1 John 3.8 Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Paul's fourth question. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And Paul highlights the fact that we're in a totally different world spiritually. Christians are men and women of faith. We believe the Bible and our lives are ruled by the word of God. And as a result, we cannot come together in any spiritual enterprise with unbelievers. How can two walk together unless they agree? Our beliefs, all of them, our values, our principles, our motives as Christians are completely contrary to all the values, principles, beliefs, motives of the unconverted. We may pray with them, play with them rather, work together, socialize, build together, study together, but as soon as we move into the world of worship and ministry and teaching of divine truth, that becomes utterly impossible. Now, I want you to understand, I want you to hear me. We are to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We are to always do that. And we are not to be isolationists. But we cannot allow a partnership in the realm of the spiritual to corrupt the church of Jesus Christ. Would we share our poor pit with an unbeliever and let him come and preach on a Sunday? No, we wouldn't. And this is what the, is, this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about here, about being unequally yoked. And then finally, Paul says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? What agreement? That word means putting together or joint deposit. And obviously there is none. There is no agreement. The church there in Corinth was made up of Jews and Gentiles and Orientals. And most of the church was made up of Gentiles. Now, the Jews understood that there could not be any agreement and there could not be any worship of idols. In Romans 2.22, Paul writes, you who say that one must not commit adultery, and he's speaking about the Jews, do not commit adultery. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And he's speaking to the Jews there. The Jews knew The Jewish converts would have some knowledge from their participation in Jewish worship about idols and idol worship. And as a result, they would understand that idols were an abomination to God and a violation of the second commandment. But this is not the case with the Gentile converts. The Gentiles had to make a complete break with their religious past. And that was 
idol worship. In the council of Jerusalem, they found it necessary to tell the Gentile converts to abstain from idols. In Acts 15.20, the writer writes, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and flee sexual immorality and from what has been strangled from blood. You see, idolatry is a very serious issue. And there is a very famous account in the Old Testament that highlights God's disposition towards idolatry. In the book of Exodus, a very familiar passage for many of us, in chapter 32, Moses had gone up to Mount Sinai to meet with God. God was going to give to him the two tablets of stone. There God gave to Moses those tablets, which were written by the finger of God. And while Moses was up on the mountain, the children of Israel were impatient. Where is Moses? Where is this guy? We don't know where he is. So they gathered together around Aaron and urged Aaron to make gods who would go before them. And the Lord told Moses, you better get down there, guy. Your people, they are corrupting themselves. And in Exodus 32, 9 and 10, the scripture reads, And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and that I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. God's disposition towards that idolatry was to destroy the children of Israel and just take Moses and make a nation with Moses. A pretty serious sin, would you say? And Moses pleaded with the Lord to turn away his wrath, and the Lord relented. And Moses went down the mountain, saw the people had broken loose in sinful idol worship. And here's the reaction. Here's what the Scripture records in Exodus 32, 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of God. And that day about 3,000 souls fell. Idol worship is a serious sin before Almighty God. But the same question is is posed to us today. Who's on the Lord's side? Who's on the Lord's side? Then after those five questions, the Apostle Paul says this. 
I meant to tell you the outline, but I forgot to. The command, the contradiction, and the certainty. The certainty is we are the temple of God. In fact, we are the temple of the living God. And Paul says he no longer is talking in general terms here. Okay? He is talking to us as individuals. So you put your name there. You, Gary, are the temple of God. You, Jim, are the temple of God. You, Josh, you are the temple of God. And it is the temple of the living God, not of the dead God. You are the temple of the living God. And that term refers to a raised platform dedicated to sacred purposes. This concept wasn't new to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul points out to them that you are the temple of God. 619, it says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were brought with a a price. So glorify God in your body. The price for our Purchase was the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was put to death in order that we might be redeemed and in order that God might reside in us. So the rationale that the apostle uses to support the imperative command, do not be unequally yoked, applies to you and me. So I got to ask you some questions. How is your temple doing in terms of righteousness and lawlessness? Is there any compromise there? How is your temple in terms of fellowship? Are you fellowshipping in the light of God's presence or are you walking in darkness? Is every room of your temple open to God? All the lights on? Is there anything hidden there that you don't want God to see? How is your temple doing in terms of allegiance? Is your allegiance to Christ or Satan? You know, sound doctrine is so important. And you know how it enters the church? Through individuals. We are the corporate body of Christ, and we are individuals within that body of Christ. And we need to work very hard to make sure that we are those that seek to keep pure the Word of God. How's your temple doing in terms of allegiance? How's your temple doing in terms of your interaction with unbelievers? Yes, we are to interact with them. We are to love them. We are to seek to share the gospel of the good news with them. But we have to do it in a position of strength. 
And we are not to seek to endeavor to partner with them in spiritual endeavors. How is your temple doing with true worship versus idol worship? You know, we will worship something. And in our world, there are only two beings that can be worshipped. God or Satan. And if you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and you're investigating Christianity, I urge you, make sure your allegiance is with the God of heaven, the true and living God. Make sure that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and not the temple of Satan. Now, let me ask you this question. Are there any idols in your temple? It's possible for us as Christians to have little idols in our temple. Is there something there that you're holding on to that is grabbing your attention and keeping you from wholehearted devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ? How's your temple? Open up all the compartments and let God examine you. I got to rush on. A couple things as we close. One of the things that we need to understand about the temple prior to Christ is man's limit limited access to God. The tabernacle consisted of three sections, the outer area, the courtyard, and the holy place. And within the holy place was the holy of holies where the Spirit of God dwelt. And there was a veil that separated the holy place from the holies of holies. And only one person could enter the holy of holies, and that was the high priest. And he could enter one day a year. And that was the Day of Atonement. We also need to understand that man's sinfulness required mediation to worship God. The tribe of Levi was set apart and designated as priest in the tabernacle. And then finally, one of the primary purposes of the tabernacle was to provide a way for the people to be sanctified or made holy. God demands and grants holiness, and he designated the temple or tabernacle, and the sacrificial system would allow people to achieve sanctification for their sins. And as God explained in Leviticus 17, 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given to you upon the altar to make atonement for your sins. For it is the blood that maketh atonement for the soul. Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. In Leviticus 16.33, For on this day shall atonement be made 
for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statue forever. And a priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and all the people of the assembly. All of this was a foreshadowing. If we had this economy today, we would have animals outside that we would be sacrificing. But because of the great love of our Lord Jesus Christ, God now dwells in our hearts. The curtain has been ripped apart and we can enter into the holies of holies and we can commune with our God and we need to make sure that our temple is holy before the Lord. And Paul's final exhortation was to come out from among them and be clean. Let's pray. Our Father, we rejoice in you. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ gave his life so that we could be indwelt by you and we could have intimate fellowship with you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to maintain this temple. Help us, dear Lord, to make sure that we stay true to the truth of the word of God. Help us to love righteousness. Help us to love the light. Help us, dear Lord, to give our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ and him only. Help us, we pray, this day. And may you be glorified in our lives. We pray this in the name of Christ our Lord.